I'm Kate Parker. This is Warming Signs, a podcast with the sound minds of science. Climate change, congressional hearings, El Nino's, oh my. This week's episode is jam-packed. But once Dr. Kim Kopp and I started talking, there was no shortage of subjects for us to dish about. She's a professor of atmospheric science at Georgia Tech and the director of their Global Change Program. Its goal is to prepare tomorrow's leaders to tackle tough environmental issues like climate change. But her passion for oceans and El Nino is so contagious. And boy, did we talk. Dr. Cobb, thank you so much for coming over to our studio here in Atlanta for taking MARTA, the public train, and the bike, <laughs> <I know. laughs> which is amazing. And you are my hero already. Um, it was raining, you. so extra points. <laughs> <laughs> extra points. Bonus points. Yeah. Um, you were coming from Georgia Tech today, right? Yeah, that's right. So can you tell me a little bit about what you do at Georgia Tech and also maybe take us back how you got interested in climate, the atmosphere, how did you end up where you are now? Um, I think it really goes back to my undergraduate years when I had the great, great fortune of doing a summer research internship at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, (laughs) where you can't really escape the draw of the ocean after spending any amount of time in La Jolla, California. Right. (laughs) So um, that, that was really my opening to how you could Uh, use uh, oceanography and marine science in service to climate change. And that was when climate change was just kind of becoming a um, a global issue, a national issue of the conversation. And so I just was super intrigued and came back for more during my graduate career and got a PhD in oceanography. And uh, at that point, it was it was a real um, crescendo in in kind of the science of climate change and the realization uh, of what it meant for our future. And so I thought, well, there's, there's nothing better than to throw oneself into this uh, career-long pursuit around understanding the ocean's role in climate, understanding what that means for communities around the world, um, and ultimately trying to uh, be part of the collective global messenger about climate change. And so I'm still doing the same thing 20 years later. Beautiful, very well explained, but quick. Thank but you. I know there's a lot more in there, like a lot more. <laughs> we could sit here for 10 hours, and I would absolutely love to do that, by the way. <laughs> we already have been sitting here. But we've been like chatting nonstop <laughs> since That's the true. second you walked in, um, which is wonderful, and I love it. Um, a lot of what you were talking about with like your experience with the ocean and everything, and we may have mentioned this beforehand, we both have an obsession with El Nino. Oh, yes. Hardcore. Which sounds crazy for a person to be like, I really like the El Nino Southern Oscillation. Really love these warming of these Pacific waters. Like when someone asks you, what do you love? You should say like wine or cheese, but I like those things too. But you know, uh, El Nino. Um, (laughs) What is the current status of El Nino this is totally kind of shifting gears yeah. here, but El Nino and climate change, because it's one of those topics that gets brought up a lot um, in our you know, national climate assessments and different things. And it's like, there's probably a connection, mm-hmm. but where are we in that science? Like, how <laughs> confident are we that there's something going on? Yeah. So let, let me say that my obsession with El Nino is really rooted in 
uh, the fact that it is just still so mysterious. I mean, it was clear to me when I was a graduate student that getting obsessed with El Nino was a career-long endeavor because, honestly, there were just things we would never understand about it, probably. That's how mysterious it is and how elusive it is scientifically. Um, and yet it's so powerful, and it covers how far planet it affects everywhere from Greenland to Antarctica. It's just, I mean, wow. And history. Wow. Like the different, like the French Revolution, all these yes. like ripple effects through history that yeah. are connected to El Nino. That's one of the things that fascinates me. Yeah, it's really written into the lore around the globe. Um, it's the it's the uh, cause of so many of these uh, extremes that again are written into our uh, story as a species. I mean, it's just it's just amazing. I, I just I stand in awe of its sheer strength and and again the mystery part. So coming to the mystery part uh, is really where we are. We're kind of knocking on the door of some of the earliest lines of evidence that might link the El Nino phenomenon to greenhouse gases and climate change. Um, having said that, as far as we've come in the last 10 years, which is quite far, because like before 10 years ago, it was like nothing, nothing, negative, zero, nothing. We knew nothing about this link. You know, we're scratching some of the surface now. And so that's what my lab is actually in the business of doing. We're in the business of bringing data sets that can help us quantify the history of El Nino events in the pre-industrial era and accumulate enough data from that period so that we might have a prayer of understanding if the phenomenon is changing today, right now, in the last several decades. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to get this baseline of natural variability together. And so some of our latest work that's under review right now, actually, um, would suggest that the last several decades of El Nino events are unusual in the context of this natural variability covering the last centuries to millennia from this very El Nino-sensitive site in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, Christmas Island. And so that's work by my student, Pam Growth, and uh, it really sits in the context of some other studies that are coming out from tree rings uh, in the Western Pacific and other kinds of information from uh, what we call the payload climate record, which is records of past climate variability, that says kind of the same thing. And so these studies are beginning to pile up. And I don't mean to say there are like dozens of them. There are a handful of such studies. And that but, makes scientists so nervous. Well, it's okay. That's We just, you know, state where the science is and make sure folks understand. Um, it's it's really a lot further than we were five or 10 years ago, but these are all things that have come out in the last five years or in the works right now. At the same time, from the modeling community, who are the folks in charge of projecting future climate change, they're really the only ones that can do that, uh, they are looking at those simulations and is bad as we are, generally speaking, as a, as a uh, scientific body at simulating El Nino events because they're so elusive. <laughs> There's so many physics we just can't quite reproduce perfectly in models. Um, there's so many kind of weird nonlinearities. It's just a beautiful thing. But uh, it's hard for modelers. And so when we look into the future, we have to kind of look at those simulations um, through with the appropriate context to not um, take everything home to the bank. Yet, when we look at these simulations in aggregate for uh, the next century of the evolution of El Nino, they're beginning to be able to tease out uh, the fact that 
most of these models that we feel do a better job with El Nino simulations are showing signs of impacts due to climate change. And that is specifically an intensification of the phenomenon mm. uh, with climate change going forward. And that is exactly what we're beginning to see from some of these records, like the kind that I generate from my lab. And so it's not quite you'll risen to the level where you're going to read something in a national climate assessment that says it is very likely that El Ninos are impacted by climate change or really far away from that. And that's a cool thing to remind the public about because people think climate scientists are so quick to link climate change to everything. This is really one of those areas where the burden of proof is actually quite high and we just don't have the kinds of data sets we still need to say this conclusively. But really stay tuned because this is rapidly evolving. People are chasing these data sets and when we're getting them, they're kind of pointing us in a similar direction. So I would not be at all surprised if in the next five years or so, we are able to, to say something much more conclusively. But then there's also the fact that from a risk perspective, stakeholders should realize that the, if the body of work, if the needle is starting to tip in a direction and you're a stakeholder that has extreme sensitivity to this phenomenon, like you run a fisheries in Peru, or you have coral tourism in the Great Barrier Reef, or you have, um, you're a hurricane person in North Atlantic hurricane uh, uh, predictor or stakeholder or resident or coastal uh, business owner, mayor, et cetera, um, you're going to be sensitive to that phenomenon, so much so that you may want to know what some of this emergent literature is about and maybe act accordingly. So that's some of the other kind of take-home messaging around this point is some stakeholders may not be able to wait or may not want to wait until this is signed, sealed, and delivered. Um, if it's an emerging risk, maybe it's something they should be aware of. That is um, such a great point about different people are going to be more interested than others. But just for clarification, all this that we just talked about is strictly with regard to El Nino. There are a lot of other things that are, there is very high confidence with. So just, you know, don't clip part of what she's saying here and assume that it's about climate change and anthropogenic climate change on a whole. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I mean, you know, we are we're talking about the fuzzy margins on a specific phenomenon called El Nino. Um, but obviously the National Climate Assessment and many other uh, reports lays out uh, the dozens or so a, a pile of impacts that we actually can definitively link to greenhouse gases. And there are many of them, and they threaten communities all across America. So this actually kind of brings me to my next question here. Um, you recently testified with, con with Congress, mm -hmm. and that's, first of all, incredibly impressive. Um, you're an incredibly impressive person. Oh God, it was you terrifying. Are. Well, so that's what I want to know. What was it like? I mean, you're you're talking, going and talking about climate science to yeah. this panel of people, and what was it like? Where do you feel like they had, you know, knowledgeable questions? Do you feel that there was aggression? Do you feel like it was too easy, softballs? I mean, what what was your impression? <laughs> well. It I must say just the, the top of the top line answer is that, you know, it's pretty exhausting. So, you know, it's really easy for people to watch a five minute YouTube clip and say like, oh, I would have done this. I would have done that. Or, you know, um, that looks easy or something. But, you know, it's really exhausting to prepare. It, it was about um, 40 plus hours of preparation for the hearing because you don't know what's going to happen. And that's really 
both the exciting part, but also the terrifying part. The fear of the unknown, our right. greatest human, you know, yeah. fear that we all have to un- overcome every day in our lives. Right. But this is like to the nth degree. Yeah, you just don't know. And you're keeping in mind hearings from five, 10 years ago when things got really ugly and, and kind of personal and um, really vitriolic. And you're thinking, I, I hope this doesn't go down that way. But you know what? If it does, I need to be prepared. And I need to have the firmest grasp as possible on the whole body of literature in case people want to know about very specific aspects of the science. So you kind of like boning up on the everything that the National Climate Assessment says, which spans from like insects, you know, all the way up to sea level rise (laughs) in public health and everything in between, trying your best to wrap your head around that. And at the same time, preparing these um, very succinct statements that are designed to be, you know, in the national media spotlight for 5.0 minutes. And so the preparation is is gargantuan. And um, I was I definitely just had to wipe my schedule and I'm kind of still recovering sleep from all of that. But, um, but it was very, very exciting. And while I was ready for anything and, and was expecting some um, kind of partisan bickering and, and perhaps some fireworks, um, none of that actually came to be, uh, which in the sense was kind of reassuring because maybe we have come somewhat further than we were five or 10 years ago uh, when people were bringing snowballs onto the house floor, right? (laughs) I don't know. We could still get an icicle. Someone, it could still happen. Yeah. So the the tone was um, more subdued and it was very clear from some of the questioning um, by on the Republican side that they were, some of them were really interested in getting some knowledge. Um, Definitely there was less just, um, basically head-in-the-sand approaches to the fact that climate change is occurring and it is a threat to Americans. Kind of solution space, which is interesting, and I I thought uh, pragmatic. There are always some people there who are keen on scoring some political points and they were there as well, posturing. Um, but, you know, I didn't get any of those questions. <laughs> I wish I had. Uh, but they were directed towards the Republican witnesses who um, answered in, in kind of Republican-friendly uh, talking points. But all in all, a very um, a very uh, kind of subdued and, you know, reasonable conversation around climate change. And there was just another hearing in the House Science Committee, I think it was um, last week and then maybe another one this week, where um, they really had a very substantive discussion about the issue and um, I thought was extremely productive and kind of forward-looking. And uh, that really gave me immense hope for the uh, bipartisan awareness of this issue and ultimately the design of solutions that we know need to happen. So a lot of movement on climate change up at the House these weeks, and most of it pretty good and productive movement and gives people like me a sign that we have turned the page on some of the worst chapters of uh, the discussion around climate change. I have to say, yes, I totally agree that I have felt this subtle change, but significant change recently in the general conversation around climate. And from day one, I've always felt I've I've been an advocate of you can disagree on the policies, Mm -hmm. but you can't disagree on the science. That's where the the politics come in on solutions. And they do. Yeah, of course. But, you know, shouldn't on the science. Let's pause here for just a second for a new segment that we're trying out. Sometimes these interviews end up with me feeling like I'm talking to an old friend catching up. And when friends catch up, the stories start flowing. 
Now, we're calling this segment Science Stories, and if you like it, we'll keep doing it, so let us know. Dr. Cobb has 20 years worth of awesome science stories, so I had to ask her about the wildest thing that's happened to her in the field, and I am so glad that I did. You just said something, and I have to ask. You said you have stories from the field. Do you have like a hilarious field story that it's like <laughs> the most ridiculous thing that ever happened to you or like unexpected thing? <laughs> so there are so many things. <laughs> I mean, I remember uh, just one quick anecdote that leaps to mind is uh, I had the very great fortune of being um, one of the research teams when I was in graduate school that was picked to take the yacht of the Prince of Saudi Arabia from Tahiti to the equator. (laughs) I know, right? And so there are all these, um, you know, uh, ex-British naval officers, uh, you know, at my beck and call, and there were a crew of 30 people um, there saying like, oh, what's next? (laughs) What's next, Kim? I was not yet Dr. Cobb. Uh, (laughs) What's next? And it was amazing to to go to the equator and um, use this platform for uh, scientific research and to collect samples and, and both coral samples as water samples and uh, just be part of my first lead, lead really, research expedition. And so we were uh, churning along towards Christmas Island, which is like smack in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and it's owned by the Republic of Kiribati. And so when we pulled in to conduct our research uh, to their coastline, um, we were informed that the fisheries inspector um, was only going to allow us to conduct our non-invasive research if uh, we we let him come aboard with his family and uh, ship him up to Honolulu, <laughs> which was a five-day out-of-our-way journey, and then fly him back to Christmas Island. Oh, my goodness. All his expenses. And so uh, that was just, I mean, at the time, it was like crippling, a huge, huge issue that we had to get through. Um, we ultimately had to leave the island prematurely. Don't worry, I would be back, I mean, back and back and back and back there. <laughs> um, but at any rate, it was, uh, in hindsight, one of those funnier moments where you think, you know, working in these very remote places with these, um, you know, folks that don't really understand what you're about or, or what you're doing uh, can pose a its own unique challenges. But that's actually to the point of how important it is to build these relationships through time and build trust because who are we to ship in there on a big yacht, you know, and flashing lots of money from their perspective and, you know, what are we going to give them? So there were there was there's a cute anecdote but there's also um, a powerful lesson there as well. We can give you more science stories. If you want them, let me know through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter or whatever your cyber stalking method of choice is. Now let's get back to Dr. Cobb because her answer to this next question left me empowered, encouraged, and ready to take action. And I may or may not have gone and planted a tree in my backyard immediately afterward. What are you seeing right now? Or what can we as individuals do right now that gives you hope or is something that we can do to inspire hope in our everyday life? Yes, I think that's super important because... Um, I'm somebody who who takes climate change with them throughout their entire day. Um, and that can be a really heavy burden. And even if you are not working in climate change like me, um, it's all over the place. It's it's in the headlines about broken records uh, nearly every day from across the globe. Uh, it's in D.C. through these kind of, you know, horrible partisan battles that can occur around this issue. You, you can't escape it, let's face it. So even if you're just trying to get along with your life, 
life, this is an issue that will continue to be at the forefront of discussions amongst your friends, your family, your city, your state, and of course, um, in DC and globally. And so as individuals, I think we really have to find a way to organize ourselves in this space and to organize our feelings and our goals and our moral values um, so that we can you know, tell a story about ourselves as hopefully part of the solution and uh, as much as we are part of the problem, that's been made very clear, right? Uh, all of us are emitting uh, the gases that are causing climate change. But how can we begin to be part of the solution? And I'm really heartened by the fact that the majority of Americans, and not just by a slim majority, over 70% of Americans uh, really understand uh, the science behind climate change in the sense that they understand greenhouse gases are warming the planet. They uh, find it personally important to them, and they feel it will affect their lives. And so what that means to me is they're going to be reaching for solutions. And as an individual, I encourage people to recognize that there are Again, these 70% of folks out there would include a large number of Republicans as well who uh, are supportive of solutions. So there are a couple different scales, I think, to mention here. But the most important thing is, is to get engaged. Uh, get engaged in solutions wherever you can and however you can, recognizing that there are probably like a thousand different ways to get engaged on this issue. And that once you get engaged, there's kind of this positive feedback loop of, hey, you know, I know I'm still part of the problem, but like I am actually becoming part of the solution. And um, talking to my kids about that, and I'm, I'm talking to my community members about that, and I'm feeling more hopeful, and I'm watching a community come together that I wasn't aware of before on this issue, and I'm feeling part of something. People just want to feel part of something, right? That's what of this course. is all about, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're now part of the weather.com family, so now you're a part of another community. <laughs> I love but, it. but yeah, exactly. Feeling it, a part of something is vital. It is extremely important, and to have a sense of yourself as um, as a moral individual and somebody who enacts their values um, in this space is, is extremely important. And there's no one size fits all. Oh my God! If you take nothing away from our conversation today, please remember that there's no one size fits all. It's not about becoming vegan. It's not about biking. It's not about not flying. It's not about voting Democratic. It, it, those You can pick your own uh, way to be part of the solution here. Dr. Cobb and I could have talked four days, but we thought we'd limit this a little bit and maybe just invite her back another time. So hopefully she'll join us once again on Warming Signs at a later date. I want to thank you also for joining us, and I hope that you'll help make this a conversation. A huge thanks goes to Mia Bichak, Dan Wright, Jim Robinson, and Eric Zirkle, as well as the entire team at weather.com that helps get this out of my brain and into yours every Tuesday. Until next time.